J7. Hit. Yeah. I hit. You have sunk my battleship. Excellent! Yeah! Hello, listeners. It's Chris Bag, and this is Upper Middlebrow. Usually, it's a podcast in which me and my friend Jesse Dukes talk about a book or a film or some other element of pop culture we feel has both high craft and popular appeal. And we sometimes do digression episodes in which we speak to a guest about something tangentially related to one of our episodes. This episode is one of those digressions in which Jesse interviews Beatrice Marovich, a theologian about theology and fiction and personifications of death. Enjoy. I am here today with Beatrice Marovich. Beatrice is the author of Sister Death, Political Theologies for Living and Dying. That is a book on Columbia University Press, published in 2023. She teaches in the Department of Theological Studies at Hanover College in Southern Indiana in the Ohio Valley. Uh, Sister Death, the book, also features a series of original works by the artist Krista Dragomer, who I randomly met, completely unrelated to Beatrice, not very long ago. So, Beatrice, welcome to Upper Middlebrow. Thank you for having me. You are welcome. Uh, this is really, really fun. Um, you, well, we should also just say, like, you and I met, oh my gosh. Uh, Almost 20 years ago? Yeah. Probably 19, 20 years 19, ago? 19 years ago. It was, it was like 19 years ago this month at the Salt Institute for Documentary Studies, where we were both uh, students, uh, me studying radio, you studying writing, which, I mean, in my case, it launched me into my current career. You did some other launching in various ways since then. So it's it's really exciting to reconnect and uh, congratulations on the book. And we'll get to the book. But I believe you have some reactions to an upper middle brow episode or episodes. Yeah, I wanted to talk about your uh, episodes on uh, Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower, which is a book that um, I probably found out originally through like colleagues in theology. Mm. I think Monica Coleman, who's like a womanist theologian, um, wrote about this book. And I read Monica Coleman's work in graduate school and just became curious about Octavia Butler. So it was um, I've had lots of conversations with with her, people in like sort of my academic world about this book. And so it was fun to listen um, to your episodes about it and hear what y'all had and, to say. And we did not know. I don't think either of us knew going in that people might think of it as a work of theology or having a relation. We, uh, I thought of it as, oh, this is a famous black African-American sci-fi writer, you know, somebody who wasn't necessarily recognized for her talent in her time, although she was published and had book deals and things like that, but is increasingly celebrated and recognized, even though she's no longer with us. Yeah, I mean, it is, I mean, as I think that your discussion made clear, I mean, it's like deeply preoccupied with theology, religion's kind of at the heart of it, although it's also, I think, a very like skeptical book. Mm -hmm. um, you know, she was a very skeptical person um, when it came to religion and had some, you know, issues and qualms with religion and, and sort of the social and political power of it. And so I think it's a really interesting book for that reason. It's just a very like theologically creative and extremely speculative text, which I think is one of the things um, that makes it cool, like, for me. I mean, I think 
both Chris and I concluded that we think that Earthseed is not just a creation that she attributes to the character. You know, her theology, Lauren Alamina, that 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 Earthseed as a theology is resonant, relevant, maybe even represents the author's belief as well. Uh, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to know always, right. but, you know, I think that, like, to some extent, it feels that way for sure. And I think, you know, part of it to me also, it, it, it seems like, you know, it's, it's really important to her that, like, Earthseed has its very highly particular dimensions to it. And so at one point she's having a conversation with, you know, one of the who will like someone who will soon become a follower. And he kind of mentioned some parallels to like Buddhism. And, you know, she's like, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 similar to all that stuff, but it's not the same. Like it is its own mm -hmm. thing. Um, and I think that's true. But I also definitely think, you know, she's pulling in a lot from her own background. And I think that like there's a lot like that does seem related to Christianity as she probably encountered it in her black Baptist tradition growing up. Right. And, um, you know, given the fact that she does have skepticism I mean, she had, you know, she expressed in interviews having skepticism about, you know, the, the influence that religion has on the world and how it has, you know, often a quite negative influence, even though it's, it seems to be set up to do something very different. Um, and so, you know, she wanted to think about how it could potentially have a positive influence. Mm -hmm. But I think she also was just extremely attuned to the various ways that it could do social violence to the world and can really actually divide people um, it, with. Is, is Earthseed among, like, theologians, you know, your academic colleagues, is Earthseed influential? Well, I mean, I definitely think that, uh, so Monica Coleman is a woman's theologian, and I definitely know um, other uh, people who do Black feminist thought and Black feminist theology and Black theology who have found a source of inspiration in Butler. And I think in the last decade or so, more and more people have started to pay attention to her as a kind of interesting figure who, um, you know, challenges theological tradition in a lot of ways. But um, I'd say that's like a maybe slightly newer development, <laughs> like, I guess, a decade isn't necessarily all that long of a time. Like in, in my mind, it's not oh, yeah. like that long of a time. But well, me neither. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not a theologian, but I, I would say if I have one academic discipline that I'm closest allied to would be history. So a decade is nothing. Uh, I mean, I was interested in the way that you and Chris were kind of talking about like, ca like categorizing this book, like, you know, what genre is this? And in some ways, I think that it's kind of an uncategorizable book. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I, I wanted to kind of weigh in on that conversation a little bit because I think that, um, you know, as I was listening to your conversation about it, um, it was making me think about how I feel like in some ways this book is like, it's like almost sort of torn apart between or torn between genres in a way. Mm -hmm. And I think that this has something to do with, you know, the possibility like that maybe this is part of, you know, Butler's own sort of theological speculations. And so she's sort of couching them in a story about a character in a novel. Um, but there's also this dimension of speculative theology that does seem to be meaningful to her for whatever reasons. Um, and I think it, it's funny because I, I was thinking back to like a, a different epic in my career where like I, um, I, I used to kind of refer to theology as speculative fiction. Huh. <laughs> But I was, which seemed like a like an apt sort of description. Maybe to a me little because... insulting to some people, but um, I, I think it's funny. Right. 
Right. Well, I, you know, I actually was like, you know, fiction is a great place to go to to look for truth, theological ideas. Yeah. And to, for truth and meaning and, yep. and purpose. And but I think that um, I think a lot of people get offended by that, that use of the term fiction. Um, yeah, I could see that. <laughs> When it comes to thinking about theology, and I and I totally get it. And I, I I've I've like you know reined I've reined that in, and I and I actually do agree because I think that like, um, in the end of like in the end, I think that like theology is something that makes truth claims, and I think that's incredibly important, um, and that's part of the way that it functions, and so it uses like a philosophical language to make fundamental truth claims about the nature of reality, um. And, you know, I think that like theology kind of gets it, it, it's like these truth claims that get kind of thrown out into this communal pot and sort of tested to see if like the ideas stick or not. And people debate and discuss them and take them apart and reshape them. Um, so I feel like, you know, theology just as a genre in general is um, it happens very much like in a, in, a, in a philosophical register, which I think there are definitely aspects of the book that function that way. Right. But um, I think that, you know, fiction is, I mean, especially like the modern novel is like a much more modern genre. And I think um, especially in a novel, there's like a there's a form of storytelling that I think often tends to push back against the sort of authority of some of those truth claims. I mean, there's just, there's something about fiction that, that just wants to kind of open up a space for thinking and storytelling that doesn't, that's like kind of hostile to those kinds of. Yeah. And, and in fact, like the writer's task is to create fictions that feel true. And the test of that, I think among the, uh, uh, is, does it work for the reader? Right. There's, there's no, there's no resort to authority. The writer should not ever say to the reader, you should believe that this character would do this thing because I'm telling you it did. And because I'm part of a 3000 year tradition that is telling you that it did, it, it has to work and it has to work according to whatever the reader's senses are the rules of this world that the writer has created and the truth claim that fiction is making only works if the reader buys that the story has something true to say about life and um, it seems to me like theology argues from authority and asks for faith yeah and i think that you know hagiography is a genre that's always worked really well with theology and i think that like that's almost what you'd kind of expect to see like this particular theology get couched in mm. is a sort of hagiography hey, of a character. But I think that, you know, Butler is carefully not doing a hagiography hey, of Lauren. And I think, you know, that becomes even clearer in mm. like Parable of the Talents, where I think Lauren's role is even more ambivalent, right? Mm. Like she has this daughter who gets uh, abducted and, you know, <laughs> I mean, I think that like it's a that book becomes a kind of stage where like you kind of see her split between her mothering and her like community building. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's, um, I mean, I think it's, it's uncomfortable and honest and it's not, it's not hagiography. Hey yeah. I haven't read a lot of hagiographies. Hey I've read probably some like founding theological texts, but what I'm realizing is that you really get, Lauren, I think, is a prophet. Like, I would define her as a prophet in, in this telling. But you really see her theology and her personality and her character evolve. You know, it seems to me that a lot of saints don't 
they might get hurt, but they don't, you don't see them evolving into the person that they are celebrated for being. They seem to, in those stories, appear, you know, as this perfect or nearly perfect person close to the angels. Right. I mean, and even like the Gospels, like, you know, there's like a flatness to the, yeah. like, I mean, if you're looking at the Gospels as like novels, right, yeah. there's just like, a, there's just, there's a lack of character development. Yeah, Jesus goes away for 30 years and he comes back and he's Jesus, you know, son of God, right. rabbi. And there's lots of great, like, books and movies about Jesus, but yeah. like, they're complicated and they're psychologically complicated. And there's a sense in which they can kind of just rely on like what already, like what everybody already kind of knows about the story. But she's both trying to develop this like theology and wants to kind of like take a skeptical and humanizing look at the founder of this religion. And so I think that like in some ways that that attempt to kind of give the reader something that's like genuinely like powerful and uplifting and then also to kind of like critique and be skeptical about the person who is the vehicle and the message is it it's like a it's a, like a creative challenge, I think, that um, I could only imagine must have been incredibly difficult. It is. I mean, I think one of the things that Chris and I both note is that there's not a lot of really lyrical, poetic writing in the book. There are moments of it, but even the moments, it's it's kind of like Hemingway lyricism. It's stark. But I think the thing that she manages to do really well, I'm reading another hard sci-fi book right now by Larry Niven and Jerry Purnell called The Moat in God's Eye, which I just kind of picked up because I wanted something fun to read and in a sort of lull in upper middle brow uh, required reading. And it is fun. Um, And at first I was kind of underwhelmed by it because the writing is also not very lyrical and it is very hard sci-fi. And it really is just about speculating, well, what would it be like if we had an instantaneous drive and we could go to this other solar system and there were aliens there where their various jobs were different subspecies? Let's do a thought experiment about that. And it's actually, it's as I've gotten more and more into it, I'm actually enjoying it more and increasingly impressed by its coherence and how it's kind of holding together. But, but I think one of the things I really like about Parable of the Sower, I haven't read Parable of the Talents, is... It works as a hard sci-fi speculative story. You could just imagine it as like, uh, you know, airing on AMC after The Walking Dead. Like it is that kind of story, just a kind of survival story of people in this kind of post-apocalyptic. And it also works, I think, theologically. Like I find the ideas of Earthseed to be coherent, interesting, inspiring, maybe more attractive than many theologies that I have encountered in my own life. And that's amazing. To, to weave those two things together, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Did you know that there's, like, people who actually practice Earthseed? No, but I, I, I'm, not, I'm not surprised. I mean, t- t- what do you know about them? I mean, I, I found them on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know, like, if it's much more than just, like, a sort of internet phenomenon. But, like, there's a website that's, like, I think it's, like, earthseed.org or something like that. I don't know if it's just that they've put together um, like the ideas from the two parable books or if they've you know yeah. added anything in there. Yeah. But there's like a, a section where they sort of get into like what they call the book of the living. Um, and I think they have like a Facebook group. Interesting. I wonder, <laughs> but I think it's... It, I wonder what the practice of Earthseed is because, you know, in the book, the only real practice that you get is this kind of Socratic... Um, dialogue, but that's because the prophet of Earthseed is present and alive in the book, you know, so the disciples can talk with Lauren Olamina like 
Jesus's disciples talking with Jesus and, and, you know, asking him whether they should pay taxes or like, you know, um, what about the people who, uh, you know, only now came to uh, recognize God? Why should, why should they be rewarded as much as the people who've been good, you know, I guess in this case, Jews for a long time, you know, and then you get the, you know, the parable of the the, um, the prodigal son. It's the parable yeah. of the prodigal son. Right. Um, well, I want to make sure we get to sister death. So, yeah, I had one. I wanted to say one I one one other Great. reaction, which is that I wanted I, this. I, you mentioned something as an aside in your conversation with Chris, and I, I think it was just kind of a throwaway comment. But I was like, oh, I have to say something about this Uh-oh. because I disagree. <laughs> but you said uh, at some point you were having. I think this was in the first episode, and you were sort of saying, look, I think that like actually, you know, she's saying that like God is the world, mm. and I was like, oh no no no, mm. because I definitely I don't think that for Octavia God is the world, and I think like Chris sort of like responded to you and I wasn't sure if he was disagreeing, but he was like, yeah, you know, well, God, God has change, you know, and you were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, so God is the world. <laughs> and I was, <laughs> Chris is often very gentle in his disagreement, you know? He, um, so, so you got to let me have it then. You, gotta, you have to be the collective. Well I, well, I think that, you know, I, I can understand where that, like that idea would come from. Cause I mm. think that for her, like the, the idea of, of God is not supernatural. Right. So like, it's not that God is some kind of supernatural entity. It's just some perfectly like real dimension of the world, right? She talks about God as being changed. But I actually think that the fact that like, you know, she talks about like, you know, the he- like heaven being out of the earth or off the earth. I mean, I think that's actually a super important part of the whole thing mm. because I think she's like, she's an Afrofuturist, or, you know, an influence by an, an influencer of Afrofuturism. And I think that like that whole sense of like, you know, the world itself being part of the problem. I mean, and, and theologically speaking, mm. like the world is different from the earth. Mm, mm-hmm. So, you know, the world is a kind of, you know, it's a sort of a human social and political right. construct and the earth itself is, is, is different. And, um, you know, I think that like for, um, you know, for Afrofuturists, I mean, you know, the world itself is, part of the problem. The world is fundamentally anti-Black. Mm. And so part of the vision for Afrofuturism is is something out of this world. And it doesn't necessarily have to be like out, like off of the earth per se, but it is out of this world. And I think that like, you know, the, the location in the heavens um, is part of, I think, her push to sort of keep trying to imagine a, a way of life beyond the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so, but it, it, it could be we remake this world um, so that it's not ant- we, this earth um, and this social world. So, but it could also be we go someplace where the structures that have been set up in this world aren't present and we build on fertile and unmarked ground a new world. Right. And unlike the techno-capitalist vision of space, like, colonization, like, Earthseed has, I mean, Earthseed wants to seed, like, the best of the Earth in another place, mm. right, outside of this world. And so it brings, like, the earthiness of Earth. I mean, that's kind of, like, I think part of the hope, right? Like, the earthiness of Earth is something that can be brought outside of the world, you know, possibly even to other planets. Like, it's, like, 
I think that kind of dynamic vision is part of the hope. And it's like wanting to bring like our like kind of raw humanity, like the good, the good and beautiful dimensions of it. And, you know, all of the the sort of dimensions of the natural world that have fed that that kind of beauty and humanity, like wanting mm. to find ways of bringing that outside of the world and to find an out an otherwise space where those things can kind of thrive and be realized. All right. So so note to Jesse, Beatrice says that God is not the world and Earth sea. <laughs> um, you know what you're saying though about and and you know that makes sense. It's 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 heavily echoed in uh, Neuromancer, which we read even more recently. I don't know if you've read that book, um, but there is this techno space capitalism that is the primary antagonist, and they have a orbital colony, and then near that colony is a kind of anarcho Rastafarian colony of habitats and spaceships called Zion. And they refer to everything else that's happening in space as Babylon. And I feel like it's the same metaphoric as I understand Rastafarian religion, you know, Zion and Babylon. Um, and yeah, well, that's fascinating. I don't have anything else to say about that other than I'm just going to let it sink in. And maybe I'll go back and read uh, uh, the Earthseed writings to see why, where I got the idea that God was the world. I definitely had the idea that God, God is change, and but we have the power to change the world, and, and that so that these concepts are sort of intermingling in interesting ways that they don't necessarily do in, say, Christian theology or or other theologies. And because God is change, God is present in the world. So I pulled just one little passage. Mm. Uh, you know, she writes, "God is change, seed to tree, tree to forest, mm. rain to river, river to sea." Grubs to bees, bees to swarm, from one many, from many one, forever uniting, growing, dissolving, forever changing. The universe is God's self-portrait. Mm -hmm. So there's like a dimension of kind of incarnation there, like God can become incarnate in the world to the extent that, I mean, because I think that God is not something so sort of solid for her as the world or sort of, it's more of a process or sort of, there's a fluidity or kind of, um, unlocalizability right. to it. But it, it is, I mean, seed is the, the dominant metaphor. It is the grain that contains the information that is manifest in the physical world. Yeah. Hmm. All right. Well, I stand corrected. Uh, <laughs> we have sort of backed into it. So will you just say who or what is Sister Death? So Sister Death is a figure that I kind of poached from the work of St. Francis of Assisi. And he has this <clears throat> hymn that's been attributed to him. And in the hymn, he uh, he's sort of celebrating like what, you know, people now like refer to as the sort of like ecological connections between all things. And he's talking about how, you know, like how everything has, you know, sort of been connected in kinship and all creation is connected. And so, you know, he refers to um, brother sun and sister moon and, um, you know, sort of has these per personified dimensions of the natural world. And, you know, among these personified dimensions of the world, he refers to death as sister death. Um, and I liked that. Um, I, at some point in graduate school was like, I was asked to write uh, an article about it and ended up thinking about it quite a bit. Um, and I, I kind of kept coming back to that image, but one of the things I didn't really love about 
the way he's using it is that he's thinking about death as like our sister. Mm. And I, you know, it was interesting to me because I was like, man, it's still kind of like a power move on behalf of life, right? It's like his way of saying like, yeah, you know, I mean, sister death, she's like a creature like us, you know, and she's mortal too. And ultimately like what's most real is just life, life, eternal Mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're going to have after death. So don't worry. Um, (laughs) And I, uh, I, what I do in the book is I make, I, I, I sort of pose the question like, well, what if we thought about death as like a sister to life instead? And, and as I read it, then surface and curate many, many examples of writing or stories or cultural imagery or other things that somehow relate to the idea of sister death, even if it's not necessarily feminine in a particular case. Or, um, And I mean, it, one of the questions, this is a big one, but it, it just has struck me as I was reading through it. Why, why do you think we personify death. It seems like so many human cultures and theologies uh, and mythologies personify death. And I think it's like related to why we personify many things, which is I think that it just helps us to like better understand them and to have a relationship with them. Because I think that, um, you know, if we think of something as a completely abstract event that we can't possibly understand or comprehend, um, it's really hard to have a relationship to that, to that thing. And it's hard to sort of figure out how to cope with the like anxieties that that thing causes when we think about it. (laughs) So I do think that like, you know, to some extent personifying death is part of how we, we just struggle to conceptualize and make sense of it. You know, render something a little bit less abstract through a weird abstraction. Makes total sense. It it's, You know, and you write about, and you alluded to this earlier, this idea that I think is very prevalent in Christian theology of death as the enemy. You argue that this is a harmful idea or can manifest as a harmful idea. Maybe it's not always a harmful idea, Um, but that, as I understand it, sister death is an alternative theology that is not necessarily embracing death or loving death, but is acknowledging the fact of death as essential to life, uh, as an aspect of life. And this is going to be a very long question. I apologize. But um, I was thinking about, I I grew up in the South in a community that I now realize was rather religious, uh, Christian, quite a few evangelicals. My parents were both raised Catholic and both left the Catholic church not necessarily atheists, Uh, maybe they still believe in God, but definitely done with organized religion, both of them, at least when I was little. Um, And so I can remember going to funerals among my Christian friends, many of whom were evangelical or conservative Christian, probably not all. And I remember there was a kind of like tremendous performed respect for the corpse in that I found a little bit off-putting, like, you know, the velvet casket and the flowers everywhere. And if the casket was going to be lifted up, it was lifted with this kind of ceremony and dignity and these hushed voices. But then also a kind of unwillingness to talk about what actually happened to this person. You know, like, oh, when the end was near, she passed away or or she's with God now. That that basically saying the body stopped working and this person we love died was a really hard thing for people to say. And I remember noticing this as even a, like maybe a 10 or 11 year old kid. It felt sort of strange to me. And 
it feels like what I'm describing is an aspect of the theological idea that you are surfacing and critiquing a little bit. But I mean, would you agree with that? Do you think I'm noticing an aspect of that idea that you've identified? Yeah. I mean, I think that like the, you know, it is, it is interesting to think about too, just like American burials are like an interesting, um, like they're kind of their own interesting thing. Mm. I mean, especially like what what's kind of considered now like a traditional burial in the U.S. is like, um, you embalm the corpse, which is like relative, like a relatively new practice. And then you put it in this like extremely expensive box with like all of these really fancy trappings. Right. And this is not true for like, you know, Jewish burials or, you know, Muslim burials, but it is true by and large for a lot of uh, what, you know, Christians have come to kind of think of as a traditional burial. Um, but yeah, that whole thing is like, it's a new practice that's really connect- like it's connected to extreme American, um, like material wealth that like allows us to basically put, you know, tons and tons of resources under the ground and basically like mummify bodies, like their own little, you know, Pharaoh's tombs um, under the ground. (laughs) There is a beauty, I think, in that kind of like really like sort of performed respect for the body. But, um, but I, yeah, I mean, I think the lots and lots of people have sort of struggled with like, why is it that, it's kind of taboo to talk about death in, you know, in America. And so, you know, there's a pretty famous book that came out in like the mid 20th century, Ernst Becker's Denial of Death. Mm. His thesis is sort of that a lot of this kind of relies on a a sort of denial of the reality of death. Um, And I, you know, I think that that is probably part of it. But I also think that part of what I'm concerned about is not just the denial of death, but like this kind of fear that death can't really be, spoken about because it would mean then admitting that it's real and Mm. admitting that it's real would mean questioning how much influence it actually has uh, over our lives. I was talking to someone who was telling me that when he grew up in an evangelical family, like, and his grandmother died, like he was not allowed to cry Mm. and he wasn't allowed to, you know, in any way kind of openly or like emotionally perform grief because, you know, he was told by his parents that essentially this would be like denying that she had gone to heaven, the denying that she was still with us. Which seems rooted in fear to me, that the idea that maybe she didn't go to heaven and she's just gone and her consciousness is gone forever is so terrible and scary that we must not think of that. Right. Yeah, that there's a lot of, there's a lot of coatings put over like, the words and and a lot of sort of like fancy footwork to essentially avoid talking about the fact of death. The book has been like pretty influenced by this, you know, what it's called the death positive movement. It's part of this order of the good death. And I think that um, a lot of like a lot of critique that this movement's gotten from people is like, oh, what are you saying? Like, I'm supposed to be positive about the fact that we're going to die or like we're supposed to be happy that we're going to die. And I mean, I'm really totally uninterested in like accepting death (laughs) or, you know, let alone being happy about it. And that's not at all what I think the death positive movement is about. But I think it is just about accepting that it is a fact and that, you know, if we can't accept that it's a fact that I think that there are dimensions of care work that we can't actually really do because we can't really actually admit to ourselves, like, what's going on. That resonates for me. And you know, maybe there are people who find that sort of what I'm calling performed respect of the dead body to be beautiful and meaningful, and maybe that helps them mourn. And if it does, great. One thing I'm curious about is, could you just share some of your favorite manifestations of sister death? 
maybe favorite is the wrong word because <laughs> we're talking about death here, but notable, resonant, ones that stick with you? Let me think about that for a minute. And, may, and maybe not necessarily sister death, maybe just death personified more broadly. <laughs> you know, the there's like a silly, uh, a silly thing just sort of came to mind, but there's a little video that I used to show my students, uh, which is like this, it's this lovely little video that I found on YouTube. And it's like this, um, it's like this cartoon <laughs> of death personified. Um, but as this kind of little, like, cute, sort of like ghostly floating skeleton type thing and like a deer. <laughs> and like, there's this moment of encounter, like where the deer sees death and death sees the deer and the deer is like, oh no, like you're going to take me. And death kind of like reaches out and is like, no, not yet. Right. And sort of ends up just like hanging out with the deer mm. and like following it around. And like, they sort of like become like fellow travelers in a sense. Um, and then there's like this ending scene where like at some point, um, the, the, like the deer is sort of like, okay, you know, like looking old and weary and like death kind of comes and sort of like embraces the deer and the deer kind of relaxes into like this little figure of personified death. And, um, like my students, mm. <laughs> I, my students will cry when they, when they watch the cartoon and I'll cry too, like almost every time I see it yeah. <laughs> because there's something about it that's so, I mean, on some level it's like completely unimaginable but it's just to me that 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 is like a figuration of death that I think is like really very much a counterpoint to like most other like cultural images of death that I've been exposed to as like an American who's also sort of suckered on like you know European culture and history (laughs) but isn't I mean I feel like I see that from I mean even sometimes the Grim Reaper right which is the classic Western tradition personified death even sometimes there's a sense of kind of gentle guy. I'm going to gently guide you to the next place. Like, you know, meet Joe Black kind of walking with Anthony Hopkins at the end of that movie and being like, it's going to be all right. Don't worry. You know, and also for many people dying is very painful and uncomfortable. And it, it, it does seem like sometimes death is manifest and arrived and represented as a relieving force you know your suffering is over now and it's scary because we don't know what happens next and many of us suspect absolutely nothing would i definitely feel like that image of death is a little bit familiar to me if if it rings a bell yeah yeah i think that um like octavia butler <laughs> kind of i mean because like because lauren olamina is like has this hyper empathy um you know i mean she like kind of almost has to like acknowledge that there are sometimes just things that are worse than death Mm. and that there are like forms of suffering, extreme forms of suffering that are worse than death. And that there is, um, you know, that there is in some, in some senses, like a, a certain kind of peace in death. And it's like, you know, I don't think she likes that. I don't think she likes to think about that. And it's not in a particularly like like happy or hopeful message within the book itself. But I do think that that is kind of just part of her general awareness of things. Do you think, apart from Earthseed, we talked about Lauren Olamina, in your book, in your research, have you seen theologies of death that you find more attractive? Or do you think there are people whose theology of death is healthier than this sort of Christian theology idea of death is the enemy that you talk about in the book? I mean, 
I don't know. I mean, I think one of the like one of the things that I think is kind of like a a, a, a figure who I think is like curious and interesting is like the Hindu goddess Kali. So she's, you know, she's a goddess of death and destruction, but also creation. And I think like I've always been kind of like. Uh, you know, just interested and compelled by that kind of that that just sort of sees, um, you know, birth and death and creation and destruction in a in a in a sort of tight and like integral relationship. So that there's not necessarily one without the other, mm-hmm. because I think that is true and important. I mean, I think one of the reasons why um, we're able to have novelty and growth is in part because of decay and death. And um, I don't mean that as like a callous sort of like, well, you know, that's just the way things work. And like, you got to make your peace with the fact that, uh, you know, bad things happen so that more good things can happen. But I I don't know. I mean, I think that yeah, um, we don't have to be OK with it. Right. Like we don't have to like it or not feel angry or scared. But I think there's just, you know, I mean, I think that to sort of like like demonizing death or thinking of it as a figure of evil or thinking of that kind of like relationship between creation and destruction is fundamentally like bad and evil and like against the will of God or the divine or whatever. I mean, I think that to me is part of what I just object to. Um, But I also think that part of what, um, part of what I have an issue with, especially in the Christian tradition with the way that, you know, the followers of God become, you know, friends of God and so friends of life you know, is that it it does create a kind of split between, you know, the people who choose to follow God, the people who love the God of life, and then those other people who are enemies of God and love death. And so there is this kind of inbuilt sense of inevitability that like those who choose not to love the God of life then have essentially like rendered themselves more killable or more more exposed to death. I mean, you think about the colonization of North America and South America. And, and, you know, there was this idea that a lot of ideas about indigenous people. And actually I just watched Martin Scorsese's version of killers of the flower moon recently, which I didn't think was amazing. I thought it was all right. Um, But one idea that I think he actually captured really, really well is this idea that indigenous people were kind of destined for death. Uh, in the face of essentially a superior people, white people, meaning the people who are thinking that. And it seems to me like part of what you're tapping into is that, is that in not embracing God, if God offers internal life, you know, through Jesus, and you don't embrace that, then you must be closer to death, and therefore maybe you're more deserving of death. I mean, from my study of history, which is not as in-depth as some, I think that's a real calculus that is happening throughout our history and the history of, of white supremacy. I mean, absolutely. It was like, I mean, it was a dehumanizing strategy. And so, I mean, part of what I like I'm talking about in the book is that I, um, you know, I argue that like part of this focus on, um, you know, the, the sort of, um, the sort of the the pure life of God is that it creates this, um, this, well, I mean, like Jesus becomes in Christian theology, this like divine human, you know, somebody who can be both fully human and fully divine. And other humans, 
um, you know, obviously can't be Jesus, but like they can through the Eucharist, like Eucharistic rituals and practices can become closer to God, more like Jesus can follow in Jesus' example, sort of ingest a bit of Jesus's literal body and blood because it's not just metaphorical, it's transubstantiated, you're eating the body and the blood. So you're, I mean, you're essentially ingesting part of this like body and blood of the divine human. And so in that ritual, you're sort of becoming more and more like this yourself, I mean, is kind of the idea. And so it creates this sense of like, literally, people are becoming more divine, they're becoming more like God. And then there's those other people who don't do this, who don't follow these rituals, who don't have these practices. And they are essentially a different form of human. They're a less divine form of human, a more creaturely, a more mortal form of human. And so in that sense, like their lives just literally don't count in the same way. I wanted to share, well, we were texting. I think I just want to acknowledge that we were texting about different personifications of death. And one of my favorite that I have remembered since the 90s when I saw this movie in the theater is Death in Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, uh, played by William Hadler, who puts on this Czech accent, you know, and at one moment he says, um, you have sunk my battleship. Uh, when, when, when Bill and Ted are playing Battleship with Death uh, as a kind of, you know, it's, that's a callback to Everyman, the play where Everyman plays uh, cards with Death. And I think in the Seventh Seal, does the knight play chess with Death too? So, yeah. so these are yeah. very high-minded literary references happening in Bill and, Ted, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. And, and I went back and watched that scene, and it is hilarious. But I actually remember I was young enough when I saw it the first time that that depiction of Death was actually really scary to me at first. And I was, you know, young enough that I was like, oh no, Bill and Ted are in hell. And like, you know, at one point they have a um, gym coach who's making them do infinity push-ups, you know, and, and Ted says, dude, there's no way I can do infinity, you know? And so it's, it's funny, but I remember actually being scared for the guys. And then what happens in the film is they beat death at, uh, I want to say battleship, twister, clue you know at one point he's like colonel mustard did it in the library with the candlestick and he's totally wrong and finally they defeat him so roundly at all these children's games that he kind of becomes their servant and has to accompany them and he transforms into this very lovable character who is probably the best character in the film like he probably gets the most laughs and at the end, he's part of their heavy metal band and like people adore him because he's death and it's a heavy metal band and he's having a lot of fun. And I don't know, it's really funny. It's silly. But I think as a kid, that journey of death from really scary, intimidating master of hell into this personified form who's vulnerable and funny was actually very relieving. You know, I remember really liking it. And I think it's not just because it's funny and silly. It's also because there's some human impulse to want to neutralize the terror of death. And maybe personification does that to some degree. Yeah. I mean, I think there is, it's, um, it's diffusing, right? Yeah. Like it's, um, and I think that, you know, there's a sense in which I think some people would be like critical of this, right. And would say like, well, you know, well, you can't inoculate ourselves against the, you know, the terror of, of what's real. And, and, and maybe there's a sense in which, you know, if we don't take it seriously enough, then, you know, we're just making light of trauma and tragedy. And, um, I mean, I think those things are true and can be true, but I also think that like comedy has a place (laughs) and I, 
but no, but I think that there's just, there are moments for laughter. And I think if we don't, if we can't laugh at really anything that happens to us, including the fact that we die. And if we can't, you know, be able to like make jokes about our, our mortality, then um, I don't know. I think that seems like a kind of impoverished way of being. And, and I mean, I think people, you know, who are sentenced to death or are dying rely on humor to master the fear. I think that, you know, that's well documented. And I don't know, I actually kind of write a, want to write a book about this because I think laughter is actually, I think laughter is the mastery of fear. Like, I think that's the sound we make when we're no longer afraid. And we make ourselves laugh when we're afraid in order to excise the fear. I mean, when you're laughing, you feel better, even if you're terrified, yeah. you know, and then you might go back to being terrified a second later. Uh, but you, you staved it off for a second. Have you seen The Right Stuff, the film? Um, I think it was... Philip Kaufman directed based on the Tom Wolfe. Um, so it was Tom Wolfe's uh, nonfiction book about the space program, the American space program. So like Mercury and then later the Apollo programs and how that evolved out of uh, test pilot culture from uh, World War II. And so you've got all these like macho test pilots in California and they're all competing to be astronauts, but they're also taking a lot of risks and sometimes they die because they're flying new airplanes and testing the capacity of those airplanes and they're very competitive and there's a lot of testosterone and they all think they're better at it than they are and there's this character who is just called the minister and he's played by royal dono is the name of the actor i don't know if he's related to paul dono um same last name um very he was a character actor and he's tall and he has this very booming voice and he becomes death personified in the course of the film. The film's like three hours long. And the first time you see him, it's after one of these test pilots plane crashes. And he shows up along with the officer at the doorstep of the widow, the, this brand new widow, and takes off his hat. And she starts crying as soon as she sees him because she knows what his appearance on her doorstep means. Later, we hear him singing at the funeral of the same pilot and he's you know he's leading the funeral and he's providing succor and comfort and then later still you see him at the launch of the mercury you know rockets john glenn alan shepherd as if to say the specter of death is always looming over everything that's happening you know this is a mood of celebration and and i you know i just as, as, as I was reading your book, I just kept thinking about how that character is both terrifying, but then is also there to provide a service and then is also singing the hymn too, offering, offering some comfort in that moment. Yeah. I mean, I think part of, um, I, I, I think that like, you know, part of what I'm trying to do in the book is to just like, to, to not, to, to not create too sharp a division between like our experiences of like what causes fear and what gives us a sense of like beauty um, I mean, I think there is like I, when I when I like read deeply in theology and one of the things that like I think has been meaningful to me about just sort of like digging into this weird like treasure chest of like terrible ideas and like weird ideas and cool ideas. Um, I mean, I think that like the stuff that feels most like resonant to me is the stuff that is both like aware of kind of just the beauty and the horror that is like our life on Earth. And I think, um, you know, there's like, the you know, this sort of like line from wisdom texts that gets cited a lot, but I think some of the meaning gets sapped out of it. But it's this idea, right, that like uh, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, right? And I think that that sense of fear is really like deeply embedded within theology and just that kind of recognition of just the general fear, fearfulness and the scariness of 
of it all and the, the scary feeling of being here. Um, mm. But at the same time, like that's not as separate from the feeling of just being overwhelmed by the beauty of it all. And I think sometimes those two things kind of work together. And I think when we take our fear completely off the table and when we don't look at it or think about it or, or even just discuss it, then I don't necessarily think we can um, be as sort of like sensitive to or attuned to the things that actually are meaningful and beautiful to us as well. Um, yeah. which is really hard. It's one of the hard parts about like being alive. I'm trying to teach a seven-year-old how to navigate all this stuff and it's not easy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Although I think you write this in your book too, that kids are naturally curious about death, instinctively curious about death too. Yeah. She likes to have talks about this stuff. And so we've had lots of discussions about it. And, and what better way to clarify your thinking than to have to explain it to a seven-year-old? Absolutely. <laughs> she, she's awfully, uh, She's awfully intellectually engaged in the world. Yeah, she's a little bit of a philosopher, which I don't think is an accident per se. <laughs> Sounds like not. If somebody if somebody wanted to purchase a copy of Sister Death, what would your favorite way for them to do that be? Yes, if you buy it, go to Columbia, the Columbia University Press website and use the code CUP20 and you'll get uh, 20% off the book. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. And... Uh, if people want to read your other musings, you have a Substack. Can you remind me where you would find that? Yeah, it's um, it's it's Galactic Underworlds is is the name of my Substack. So it's um, yeah, and I have a, a website too, which like links to the book and the Substack as well. Are there other Beatrice Maraviches out there? Uh, not that I'm aware of. Um, when you Google Beatrice Maravich, I'm pretty much the only one who pops up. There's a um, there's a Jesse Dukes who's like a liberal evangelical youth pastor in Atlanta and we're Facebook friends and he's he lives in a very different world than I do and I but I like we've 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 just messaged each other once or twice and every now and again he'll post something and I'm like that's really prof like I like him based on his Facebook profile <laughs> I like him a lot and and it and he occupies a world that I am sometimes critical of but he occupies it in a way that I really appreciate it and I I don't yeah. there's some kind of I wonder if there's some kind of nominative determinism going on or if it's just luck I don't know that's kind of beautiful I've always kind of kind of glad that um nothing else really comes up when you google my weird name um but that's like a that's a good case for like you know finding your name doppelganger on the internet Yeah yeah there's, I mean, there might be one in Latvia. I don't know if you. I don't know if you've looked there too. Of course, basketball fans are very familiar with your last name. One of the yeah, I, I definitely. I you people not so much anymore. But when I was a kid, people used to be like, "Oh, any relation to Pete? Pistol Pete, your uncle?" Yeah, <laughs> right. And I was always like, "What? <laughs> yeah, what are you talking about? <laughs> Who's Pete?" <laughs> yeah. Well, Beatrice Maravich, this was really, really fun. Uh, thank you so much for showing up on Upper Middle Brow and talking about Sister Death. Thanks for having me on. It was really fun to chat with you. Upper Middle Brow is a small point production. Chris Bag and Jesse Dukes are the pastors and the boatmen on the River Styx. Music by Ben Pajak and Jesse Dukes. Design and website by me, Chris Bag. Big thanks to Beatrice Marovich for joining us today. And as a reminder, Jesse and I are both writers and editors, and we can help you with your writing, podcasting, or editing project. You can see some of our portfolios and learn more at our respective websites, chrisbag.com and jessedukes.com. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time. <laughs>